Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church. Here at FBC, it's our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and we hope that this message helps you continue to grow in your faith. This audio is property of First Baptist Church, but feel free to give away copies of this message in the hopes that others will be impacted by what they hear. For more information about FBC, or if you want to stay connected with us, visit our website at fbclloyd.ca or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. Thanks so much, guys. Um, Welcome here. Uh, We are in the second week of a really short series we're doing called We Can Do More Together. Hopefully you caught Doug's message last week. It was awesome. Um, And we're doing this series for a few weeks because we believe that this is really true. We believe that we can accomplish a lot if we work together. And if we uh, really take this seriously, we believe that there's so much that can happen. Uh, If you were here last week, uh, Doug was uh, talking about talking about how we can do more together when we trust God with our finances, when we're willing to give and we're willing to support his mission here on earth with how we handle our finances and be generous. And I think that's really true. This week, what we're going to be talking about is uh, how we can do more together uh, when we trust God with our lives, with our time, with our abilities and our gifts that he's given us. Um, So we're going to be talking about serving and using who you are, literally doing more together. And uh, hopefully, this, these three weeks together in this short series will be helpful to you. What we're going to be doing this morning is looking at a text in the Old Testament, a story of a dude named Nehemiah. He has a book named after him. Um, and uh, some of you maybe are really familiar with the narrative of Nehemiah. Some of you maybe aren't. Uh, whether you are or not, I'd encourage you to read it sometime. It's a really fascinating story, especially if you read it slowly. But basically, Nehemiah is this historical Bible character. He's a famous guy. has a book named after him in the Bible, and he's famous for building a wall around the city in the nation of Judah. So he's kind of like the Donald Trump of the Old Testament. Um, so like just because of the wall thing, I don't want to polarize you guys against Nehemiah or whatever. But this guy, and both humble beginnings, he's just a dude in the Old Testament, Donald Trump, you know, started out with a small loan of a million dollars, as he told us. So anyways, these guys, uh, this guy, sorry, I'm not preaching about Donald Trump, Nehemiah accomplished some pretty cool things. And we're going to kind of rip through the narrative. There's a lot there. And uh, when I was getting ready for Sunday, I mean, my first time, my time to myself was really long because I get so fascinated with the historical context. So we're going to try to move really quickly. We're going to read some of the text and just talk about some of the text as we move through. I want to give you guys a little bit of the context in which this story takes place because it takes place in a certain time and place. And I think it's important to understand that so that we can know how that kind of relates to our context Now, because Nehemiah did not live in Lloydminster in 2018, uh, in case you didn't know that, Um, and so it's a little bit different, and want to catch you up on the context a little bit. Some of you maybe know some of this, some of you maybe don't. So, uh, in the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, a lot of times I think we, we feel that these texts are pretty different. In some ways they are fairly different, but there are a lot of similarities. And, and the biggest similarity is that the God who created the universe, who is a good and loving God, is the same God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is exactly the same. However, that being said, the way that he represents himself, the things that he does, the actions that he's up to here on earth, do change a bit. So in the Old Testament, the narrative is that God has created people, and he's created this nation, initially called Israel. Later on, they go through this kind of civil war thing, and they become Israel and Judah. Not that important, but our story is going to be more about Judah. But they become these two nations, and God is working through this nation 
to represent himself to the world. I think sometimes we read and we think God's only interested in the Israelites in the Old Testament. God's interested in everyone. I mean, you read the story of Jonah, that's all outside of Israel. But God, God wants the world to see his character and his love and his goodness, and he does that through this nation that he's established called Israel. And so there's, there are a lot of promises that come with that. God says, if you're faithful, I'll protect you. I'll provide for you. You'll have land. He promises them land, this promised land thing, and it will be fruitful. You'll have lots of food. You'll be prosperous. He says, I'll protect you. You'll be safe from your enemies. And people will see that as you're a rich, prosperous, uh, secure land, people will see my character represented through that. There are even structures in there that are significant. Originally in Exodus, they built this thing called the tabernacle, um, and it's literally a place where God's glory and presence dwells within his people. He's intimately like with his people through this thing called the tabernacle. Later on, they have the temple instead, and God, that's, that's how they do like, you know, communion with God. They, they meet with God through the tabernacle and then eventually the temple. When you get to the New Testament, uh, the New Testament writers are no longer, something changes. What God's doing is different. The, the, the writers are no longer interested in land. Jesus shows up, and Jesus is like, I'm not working through a certain nation. A lot of his originally, original audience wanted him to. They wanted him to be a national leader. He's like, that's not what I'm up to. It's not about a nation. It's not about a country. It's not about a certain people group. He's like, I'm starting a new movement to represent myself to the world around you, and it's open to people from all across the world. It's global. Every walk of life, every ethnicity, every type of person can be part of this movement. And he started this thing called the church. In fact, in the Old Testament, you read about land a lot, and prophets would guarantee land and prosperity and stuff like that. In the New Testament, it's silent about that. God's no longer concerned about some kind of physical existence here. In fact, the only thing you'll find that's really close to that is in the New Testament. The New Testament writers talk about an inheritance that God has for us. You can read Ephesians 1 to read a bit about this, and this inheritance is eternal. It, it's literally just relationship with God and having eternal hope. Uh, be able to spend eternity with him after this life. When the New Testament talks about the temple, it's not usually talking about like a physical structure. There's no, the temple doesn't matter anymore. It gets destroyed eventually, and it doesn't matter anymore. When it talks about the temple, it's actually always talking about two things, either us or Jesus. When it talks about the temple, now the temple is us, and God dwells in us. That's pretty exciting. There's some differences between what it would be like to look, live like in the Old Testament and the New Testament, some pros and cons on both sides. I think that's a huge pro for us, that now the temple is us and God dwells within us. His presence is in us as followers of him, and that's pretty exciting. So when Jesus shows up, he's like, I'm not starting a nation, I'm starting a movement, and this movement is called the church. He comes, he talks about this church thing, he starts it, he works for it, he dies for it. And then at the end, before he leaves, he leaves a mission for the church. And it makes me think back to when God first created Adam and Eve, this parallel in the Old Testament where God creates mankind and he says, I've created you now, go forth, be fruitful, and multiply. What he's saying is he's saying, you know, be rich and prosperous, build stuff, and represent me to the nations around you by the ways that your nation is prospering and flourishing. So his commission to them is go forth, be fruitful, and multiply. And Jesus, when he leaves, his commission that he gives us is basically the same. Be fruitful and multiply. What he says is he says, go and make disciples. As a church, do this. Jesus came, and, and it's not about buildings and structures and stuff like that, but it's this movement where he says you can be part of this family. The New Testament calls it his body, that you can be a part of, his bride, that you can be a part of. And he says when you're part of this movement, the church, you are literally the work that I am doing here on planet Earth to take the gospel to the world 
around you. And that's pretty exciting. So that's the context. Nehemiah is not about the 21st century North American church, but I think we can draw some cool parallels from Nehemiah if you're, following, if you're using notes in the bulletin or on the app. Five steps that I think we can learn from Nehemiah's life and what he did in the book of Nehemiah uh, that we can take in order to do more together in this thing that Jesus has started called the church. Um, so anyways, I'm going to pray and then we'll dive into the text. God, thank you so much uh, for the, the story that we're about to dive into. It's fascinating and interesting how you use uh, an ancient text like this about things that happened uh, to inspire us and to motivate us to, to live for you and to be the followers that you want us to be, God. I pray that as we dig through uh, the Bible this morning that you would just continue to speak to our lives, God. We love you so much. Amen. All right, so like I said, we're going to not read the whole text of Nehemiah, but we're going to read some parts. We're actually going to read all of chapter 1. So if you have a Bible or you can follow along on the screens or whatever, we're going to start in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, which is like November, December, doesn't make a big difference in the Middle East, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. So just a little bit more context, what had happened was, like I said, God had started this nation, uh, Israel, and it became Israel and Judah, and he said, if you're faithful, I'll protect you and I'll provide for you. If you're unfaithful, you're on your own and you'll be in trouble. So what happened is both nations, they turn from God. They're unfaithful and they rebel against him. They start worshiping false gods and idols and it's bad. And so Israel in uh, like the 8th century BC, 722, they get exiled by this nation called Assyria and, and their exile is like really bad. And then in the 6th century BC, 586, Judah, the nation that Jerusalem is the capital of, uh, that Nehemiah is going to be focusing on, Judah gets exiled by Babylon. They get taken away. Some people remain there, but it's pretty bad. They burn the temple down. They burn the walls down. It, it, it's really bad. Um, and, and so Nehemiah's story is in that context. He's about like 130 years after that, so he wouldn't have lived through that. Uh, but the focus of his story is going to be on this. So what's happening is he's living, and oh, and also he's living in Persia now because Persia is now taken over. It's really complicated. Like Babylon takes Judah, and then Persia takes Babylon and takes everything they've taken. So now he's living in Persia, and uh, he, he hears from his brothers. He's like, things back in our hometown are bad. The walls, the gates have been burned down. They're in distress. They're in despair. And Nehemiah hears this, and he's like, that's a problem. That, that's broken. And step one that I think we need to take in order to do more together, to be like Nehemiah, is step one is to name what's broken. See, we'll see that Nehemiah was willing to actually acknowledge what's broken. I think it's easy for there to be a lot of issues in the world around us, a lot of brokenness, and, and, and it's easier to just kind of ignore it so that we don't feel like we have to do something. And you're never going to do something about the problem until you name what's broken. Now, our concern nowadays isn't that city walls have been burnt down. If anything, walls in our context are kind of a negative thing, right? The, our concern goes back to what Jesus has commissioned us to do, to go and make disciples. We live in Lloydminster. It's a town of just over 30,000 people, and most of those 30,000 people have not experienced the saving grace of the gospel. Most of those people have not experienced Jesus and his forgiveness and his compassion and the eternal hope that comes along with that. And that is very broken. And that is the most important thing that we can name that's broken in the context of being a church. There are a lot of issues in the world that we should respond to. But we live in Lloydminster in 2018, and there's so many people who don't have eternal hope because they don't know Jesus. That's what's broken, and we have to name that. We have to acknowledge that. And I hope 
that that breaks you sometimes. I hope that that actually impacts you, because check this out. We're going to continue on in verse 4. This is Nehemiah's response. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. It's one thing to name what's broken. I mean, we name what's broken all the time. That's what social media is for, right? Go online and just complain about that's what's broken, and then you, someone else can complain about your post because it was broken about what's broken and all the issues. And we just, it's easy to say, oh, there are all these issues in the world. But Nehemiah, his heart is broken. It's easy to say, yeah, most of Lloyd Minster doesn't know Jesus, but when's the last time you actually sat down and wept for days about the brokenness and hurt and spiritual depravity of the community that God has you living in today? And then he prays this prayer, and this is powerful. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. There are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Uh, man, so, so step two, and I have to explain this a bit, but step two to be like Nehemiah, to, to learn from this text, is that we need to pray. And when I say pray, I mean pray in ways that we don't usually pray. I mean, it's so easy to just be selfish in the ways that we pray. I mean, when we pray, a lot of the focus is just us, right? God, here's what I need. Here's what I'm going through. Here's what's up. And I'm not saying you shouldn't pray about your situation. God cares about all of it. But what I'm saying in comparison to the fact that most of 30,000 people in our community don't know Jesus, everything else seems to become a very small concern. You know, we pray about our financial situations. We pray about our health. We pray about all these things, and we should but not in a way that helps us forget to pray for bigger, more important things. I know I said bigger, more, that maybe that's a big statement, but I do think that people's eternity is more important than our temporary. Like, who cares if you're going through financial struggles, if your neighbor's going through spiritual struggles? Who cares if you're unhealthy physically, if your neighbors and the people in your community are spiritually unhealthy and have no hope in eternity? I, I know that stuff matters, but man... Our hearts need to, I love this prayer. Our hearts need to be broken for what breaks God's heart. The fact that there, there is so much work to do in what God has commissioned the church to do. I love this prayer. Nehemiah doesn't come in and just say, hey God, here's what I need. He comes in, he worships God. He says, please, God of heaven, even just listen to me. I don't deserve to be heard, but please just lend me your ear. And after naming what's broken, he doesn't say, hey, God, our, our community is broken because they're choosing to do this, or the, the school kicked the Lord's prayer out of school, or, or, or they did this, or they're making these choices, or, or whatever. He, he comes before God, and he confesses his own sin. He says, God, I'm sorry for what's happening in the community as a result of my sin, my father's sin, our nation's sin. And man, that, that, is, that is something that we need to embrace as a church. How often do we say, hey, God, our world's screwed up. It, it, it doesn't have you, and it's because of all this. How often do we come before God and say, God, I'm, I'm sorry that our, our community 
doesn't have eternal hope because of my sins, because of my apathy, because I choose selfishness and wickedness. Man, if we could just pray like that. In fact, as I've been wrestling with this text over the past week, what I've decided is I've set a reminder on my phone, and every day I'm going to spend time praying the prayer of Nehemiah 1 for our community in Lloydminster. And I'd invite, you can choose whoever you want, I'd invite you to think about doing this. Imagine if we prayed like this for our community every day as a church. Man, things would change. Things would change. I'd invite you, if you want, even try it for a week or a month or however long. Open up to Nehemiah 1 and pray this prayer for a community. Let your heart be broken before God to be living in a community that doesn't know him. If you're doing that, feel free to let me know. You can do it on your own or whatever, but I'd love to invite you into that journey with me. I think if we do that, if we change the way we pray, I think it'll make a difference. Okay, I could, we could stay here for the next three hours, but I do have some other stuff that I was thinking about saying. So, um, what an interesting end. After this prayer, in verse 11, he says, I was cupbearer to the king. I mean, that was a weird change, you know? He's like going through this like days of mourning and fasting and weeping, and he's like praying his heart out, and then all of a sudden he's just like, oh yeah, and I, here's my job. This is what I do. And, but I actually think it's pretty significant, and I want to look at that. So for those of you who don't know, what a cupbearer to a king back then was, was uh, basically like a, a waiter, but just for, like, kind of like a bartender. Like just all they did was they brought your cup around. You know, you're like, you're a king. You're so rich and lavish that you're like, yeah, when I was a child, I used to like go and get my own drink from the tap and lift it. But now that I'm a king, I have someone who just, what a crazy life that is. You know, these guys must be really overweight because if you can't even go get your own cup, uh, you know, no exercise. So anyways, he's sitting there. He's like, bring me my cup. That's Nehemiah's job. He just brings him his cup. Also, what a cupbearer would have to do is there was a lot of intrigue and treason back then, and so kings were like, oh, probably lots of people currently want to kill me. That's a weird situation to live in. And so they're like, in case my drink is poison, the cupbearer is also the person that takes a sip, so we check it out. So just if you're planning espionage in the 5th century BC, use slow-acting poison, right? Because like how long could they really wait that out? Like Nehemiah, take a drink, wait like three days and observe him a bit. Okay, I think it's good. So anyways, use slow-acting poison if you're ever trying to kill a king with a cupbearer. So Nehemiah, that's his job. It's not an important job. Also, if you're trying to kill a king, we want to talk to you about the gospel. But anyways, um, his sidetracked on that. Okay, so Nehemiah, his job is he's just like, he's like a, He's like a bartender. He's like a waiter. He just brings him his drink, and he takes a sip every once in a while when king, the king's name is Artaxerxes tells him to. He doesn't have an important job. He doesn't have a powerful job, but he does have something, and that's, that, that's, he's been positioned in an influential place. He interacts with the king. And we're going to see here that Nehemiah decides to take his position, take who he is, take what he has, where God's placed him, and leverage that to do something great. Um, and this is scary. What we're about to read is kind of scary because if you read Esther, it's after this, but it's actually a story that happens before it. She was married to the king before Artaxerxes. His name was Xerxes. And she was scared to even like walk into his presence because he could just say, hey, you showed up when I didn't want you to, just kill her. Like that, that's, that's the power of the Persian king. So this is who Nehemiah is dealing with. So what Nehemiah does is while he's doing the like bartending, drink testing thing, he's, he's hanging out with Artaxerxes and he actually opens his mouth and starts telling him about the problems he's heard heard about back in his hometown. He's saying, Artaxerxes, there's this stuff going on. It's broken, and I want to do something about this. He lays everything on the line. This is scary. And step, what I would say, step number three in, in doing more together is that you need to leverage what you have. You have to understand that you exist now, 2018, Lloydminster, you're part of FBC, 
You have the family that you have or the friends that you have for a reason. It's not like God's like, oh, whoops, they accidentally showed up at that time and place. Like, I mean, God creates things with design. You're here for a reason. And everything that you have exists for a reason and can be leveraged for the sake of the gospel. And Nehemiah got that. I mean, it'd be scary. He could say, you know what, like, I I, I want someone with more influence to deal with what's broken. But he risks everything. Are you willing to risk everything that you have? Are you willing to leverage everything in your life or just the safe, comfortable things? I mean, Nehemiah risks his job, his life. Are you willing to take those risks? I mean, you know, it's easy to say, well, you know, like uh, I could get fired or this could happen or people might not like me if I leverage these things for God. And that's true. I agree with you. That could happen. But so what? Nehemiah, he talks to the king. He's like, king, I need to go do this. And the king said, all right. When are you going to leave? When are you going to come back? And Nehemiah's like, cool, man. And he kind of makes this arrangement with him, gets some letters for safe passage, and Nehemiah takes off. Pretty cool. Willing to take some big risks to do what he needs to be doing. He doesn't just end with naming what's broken. He doesn't just complain about the problems, but he's like, I need to do something. So what happens is he shows up uh, in Jerusalem, and he starts scouting out at night. It's kind of a low-key scouting mission. Uh, for some reason, he's kind of keeping it secret. He's going out at night and looking around at the city. And it's in such bad ruins that at some parts it says he couldn't even fit through on his animal because there's like so many ruins and stuff. But he's looking around. It's in bad shape. And after a few days, he's like, all right. We have to do something about this. So he calls the people together, and uh, chapter 2, verse 17 to 18, this is what happens. It says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, Let us start building. So they began this good work. I'm not going to lie. This is like kind of like real talk here. As a pastor, I read some of these Old Testament conversations like this, and it's almost like discouraging and deflating, because in two sentences, Nehemiah, he, he talks for like two sentences, and people are just like, oh yeah, for sure. Doug and I get up here and holler for like 35 to 40 minutes at a time, and it's like, hopefully they like do anything, we said, you know? And so um, I need to like figure out, like you read the book of Jonah, so fascinating. He goes, one sentence, God's going to like wreck you guys. There's going to be destruction. And they're like, okay, we'll turn to Jesus. And I'm like, man, I need to learn how to like craft that one right sentence and do that. So anyways, uh, right. So he says, we need to do something. And the people, they're like, yeah, we need to do something. So step number four is do something. That seems obvious. But yes, you need to do something. And a lot of times it's hard to actually do something. Like I said earlier, it's easy to name what's broken. It's easy to look at the problems. It's easy to think that someone else should do something. But we'll see in this narrative that people are just willing to to stand up and do. Nehemiah says, hey, let's do something. They're like, all right, we're in. It's amazing. Chapter 3 is arguably one of the most boring chapters of this narrative. It's one of those ones where, uh, you know, in the Bible when you're reading a, a chapter and it's just like lists of names after name and you're like, who are these people? So what it is is chapter 3 is just this list of names of people and families who just start working on the wall and the gates and all that. And I actually want to show you something really interesting in chapter 3, verse 1. This is what it says. It says, Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. That's actually a really interesting verse. Is there anything interesting that point, pops out to you with that? Eliashib, not Eliashib the construction worker and his fellow carpenters, but Eliashib the high priest and his fellow priests went to work. The high priest is like, this is a guy who's been working in like the temple his whole life. Like he's, he's well, their temple's destroyed now, but he just works in church. This is like, you know, the, the high priest is kind of like the Pope, you know, like, or like the King Daddy, like Pastor Doug, you know, type thing. And they've been doing this church thing forever. 
And now all of a sudden, it's like they're construction workers. That's really weird. As Nehemiah 3 continues on, you'll see that goldsmiths and perfume makers, they start getting together with their families, and they start building walls. I, I don't even know, like, I've never met a perfume maker. I don't know if that's still a job. That's a weird job. Um, but if I met one, I'm sure I wouldn't be like, oh, do you have a background in, like, wall construction? They'd probably be like, no, like, that's crazy. And these people, they're not like, oh, well, you know, we don't know how to build walls. We can, like, make the place smell nice by making perfume while you guys build the walls. They're just like, whatever, give us a shovel, give us a hammer, give us whatever you got. And they start building the wall. And not only do you need to be willing to do something, but you need to be willing to do something you don't know how to do. You need to be willing to do something uncomfortable. You need to be willing to do something new. I know some of the things we talk about about doing here, or things we talk about doing here at FBC are scary and crazy. It's like, I don't know how to deal with kids. I don't know how to talk to teenagers about their issues. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to, and it's scary. But understand that in this text, Nehemiah, what was his job? He was a bartender. He, he carried a cup for a king. All of a sudden, he's like foreman or like project manager for this huge thing. You know, some of you guys like have this picture of a foreman that you're like, well, that sounds really easy, but, um, but you know, he's supervising, but he puts together this massive construction project, gets perfume makers and pastors and goldsmiths and just random families, and in 52 days, they finish this wall. I don't know much about wall building, but 52 days sounds pretty good. I don't know, like, I mean, even if it said it took years, I'd be like, that's decent. Later on, in the text, uh, they start getting opposition, and people start threatening them, so they think they're going to get attacked. So what Nehemiah does is he goes up to all these random people who do these other jobs, and he says, hey, I know I've turned you guys into construction workers and carpenters and stuff, but now I need half of you to be guards, and he gives them weapons and stuff like that. I mean, this is crazy, you know? He goes to the high priest, so it's like, hey, Doug, we need you to, like, build a new building. Okay, stop. Now we need you to, like, hold a gun and stand outside of the church on Sundays, you know, in case people, you know, try to stop us from building and stuff like that. These are weird jobs that he's giving out. And it says that the threats get so bad that in, not only do they have guards, but everybody who's working on the walls, like carrying weapons around, people who are carrying materials for them to build, carrying materials with one hand, carrying a weapon in another hand. I mean, as a parallel to serving at FBC, some of you FBC kids leaders are like, that's a good idea. I should start packing heat when I'm like helping with kids on a Sunday. That would keep them in line. Um, that would be very interesting. I hope that you don't do that. Um, but these guys are just willing to do whatever. I think it's so often to just think my preferences, my abilities, who I am, what I want to do is king. And we want the Great Commission to be built around our preferences and our style and how we want to serve. But that's not how it works. That's backwards to the kingdom of God. In God's kingdom, he says, here's the Great Commission. You build your life and your preferences around that. And we have to get that right as a church. So easy to be like, well, here's the way I want to serve. Here's the way I want to do. Here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to be. I'll wait till God catches up so that he, his mission can fit into how I'm working. And that's, imagine if these people did that, you know? It is so much easier to be a consumer than a contributor. I was talking about this a few weeks ago. It's so easy to just want to consume rather than contribute to the movement. And Jesus, when he showed up and made the church, he was all about calling contributors to his mission, saying, be part of the mission, not just come and watch. Jesus, Jesus like, chastised people who were just in it for the food or for the miracles. He said, I want you to follow me and be a part of the mission and, and, and do something. Imagine the people in Nehemiah's context. It'd be really easy to be like, no, man, I'm just going like, to keep doing my thing. I'll watch you guys build the wall. That'll be really cool. And when it's built, it'll be great because I'll get to enjoy the benefits of it. Uh, that's a consumer. You know, and it's easy to do that in the, in the church. It's easy to come, 
week in and week out and be like, my kids love the kids program. My, my teenagers love the youth program. I love this thing. I love donuts once a month. I love the free coffee. And not get the idea that at some point, it might make sense to contribute. I mean, we have uh, this little baby living in our house, and she is 100% a consumer right now. Like, she just, like, she doesn't, she's, I actually don't know if I can make that percentage higher, because she, like, makes us less productive, right? Um, so she's, she's, she's great, but she just consumes. But as she gets older, and she's part of our family, there will be expectation for her to contribute. I'm not just going to keep paying the mortgage for some deadbeat to never shovel my driveway, you know? It's like, do something around here. I actually pay the neighbor kids to shovel our driveway, but um, soon it'll be free. Um, If you guys are part of our church family, and and, and I'm not just saying don't be a consumer, be a contributor just for our sake, but for your sake. Man, you, you are missing out on what church is all about. Jesus didn't lay his life down for something that we just show up and consume from and take from and, and just spectate. It's way more missional than that. So as I said, opposition came. As they're building this wall, opposition showed up. First from the outside. People started ridiculing them. Their enemies started showing up and started making fun of them. And, and, and morale dropped. So Nehemiah got the people together. They encouraged one another. They motivated each other. They worked alongside each other to keep on going. And it kept them going. Then opposition got worse. People threaten they're going to like attack them and kill them for building this wall. It's a big deal, I guess. And, and so then Nehemiah gives them weapons. He's like, guys, we've got to protect ourselves. We're going to fight these external things. But then, as you continue to read, in the narrative, opposition started coming from inside. Rich people started oppressing the poor people. People started taking advantage of each other and not being good to each other. And, and literally, Nehemiah just stood up and said, screw that. There is no place in God's mission for people within that mission to be opposing each other and being take, take advantage of each other. And it's the same. The gospel is hard. The Great Commission is hard. Church is hard. Reaching our community, reaching the 30,000 people in our community is hard. Following Jesus passionately is hard. We need each other. That's why step five is that we need to work together. We need to encourage one another. We need to, if you're a contributor, it makes it easier for other people to be contributors. But for sure, Opposition is going to come from the outside. It's not like in a few years, I think in Canada, they're going to pass laws that are also going to make it easier for the like, Great Commission to be fulfilled. I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. It's just going to be difficult from the outside. But man, it cannot be difficult from the inside. And hear me really clear. If you're sitting in this room this morning, and you've got an issue with someone in this room, and no, you don't get a pass if they miss church this Sunday. You got an issue with someone who's part of this church or someone who's part of another church in town? then today before you do anything else, go talk to them and forgive them or ask their forgiveness and, and get over it. There is nothing that they've done that's so great compared to your sins that you can't forgive them and you can't move on. We can't risk opposition. from them. If, if you look at other people in this room with a judgmental eye or if you take advantage of people, you treat people unfairly or poorly in this church, it's just unacceptable. We have to work together. We have to. It's hard enough to be a Christian and to fulfill the Great Commission as it is. We can't make it harder for ourselves. Man, if you've got anything going on, I don't care if you have an issue with me or anyone else, today, pick up a phone, go find that person, and make it right. We can't 
risk that. The people in our community, their lives are way too valuable. It is tough to do this. We have to work together. The narrative of Nehemiah isn't that he was hanging out in Susa and these guys came in like, hey, you know, uh, Jerusalem's broken down. So he's just like, all right. And he goes and he starts picking up rocks and like putting rocks on one another by himself. No, he stops. He names what's broken. He prays about it. He leverages what he has. And he decides to do something. What he does is he builds a team. He says, we can do so much more together than if it was just me. And he rallies the entire city and they work together. And like I said, they get it done in 52 days. It's crazy. We have to work together. We have to be a team. Last week at FBC, so exciting, there were over 200 kids in grade six and under last week here at FBC. That that is really exciting. But the, the thing is, is like, Doug and I, like if I'm up here preaching, Doug can't be hanging out with 200 kids. He, and vice versa. I'm overwhelmed by the one that I have living in my house. You know, 200 kids, we have to work together. We have to come together and be a team. We're here to build a team and do more together. And I want to have just a little bit of real talk, and then we're going to have an opportunity for you guys to respond. Honestly, if you're here and you've been here for a while, and you haven't experienced the joy of sacrificially serving uh, the church that Jesus Christ started here on earth, then honestly, my heart breaks for you a little bit because I really think you're missing out. If you're here and you haven't experienced the joy of what Doug was talking about last week, the joy of giving generously to the work of the church here on earth, I'm kind of sad for you because it is, it is so satisfying and so enriching. And we don't want you to miss out on that. Uh, hear me loud and clear. Doug last week, he was saying, man, if, if you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus, then don't give money here. I'd agree with that. If, if you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, don't feel like, oh, now I have to serve the church. And do serve and give because the gospel of Jesus Christ has become real in your life. If you've truly experienced the forgiving love of a Savior, the God of the universe who died on the cross for you and gave every ounce of himself to you, how can you sit there and not be motivated to say, man, I want to be a part of his mission here on earth. I want to go and make disciples. It's not about FBC. There are lots of great churches in this town. There are lots of great churches in the world. We think this is a great faith community, but it's not about us. Like, honestly... We think there are great ways you can get involved and great reasons you can get involved and serve and give here. But if, if for some reason there is something about FBC that you're like, I just can't, then please do yourself and another church in town a favor and leave and go there. We're not just trying to build numbers here. We're not trying to say, oh, we have this many volunteers. We want you to experience the gospel and be a part of a church where you can give and serve generously and sacrificially and we wouldn't want to be the barrier to that. If you're just like, I can't stand the pastor's long hair, fine, go. There are short hairs working at other churches, you know. <laughs> They're not as strong as me, but whatever. <laughs> to us, when we talk about giving and serving, to us, the gospel is not about meeting an annual budget. We're not like, oh, yes, we've preached the gospel if our budget was met. You heard that we're behind financially earlier. We don't really care about that. What we care about is whether or not you guys have interacted with Jesus in a way where he just says, I want you to trust me with your finances. And same with your life and your time and your energy. And I know it comes with a cost. Last week, Doug was reading from Exodus 36 where um, they, they, they're like, people are bringing stuff to the temple and the priest's like, stop, you guys, it's too much. 
Man, that would be such a cool dream for us financially, but also in the ways that we serve. So often when, you know, towards the fall, when Darren and Talcy are trying to recruit people for the fall hard, I hear people say, well, do we have enough youth leaders yet or do we have enough FBC kids leaders yet? And what that question means is, have we met the bottom line quota? Do we have enough? Enough means let's survive. Have we filled all the holes? Man, it just seems like if the gospel's really moving us, why would that be our mentality? We should say, man, we have so many youth volunteers that we need to find some more students. That's what the church should be. Unfortunately, a lot of the times it's not because it's easy to focus on our own situation and be a consumer rather than really contribute and make sacrifices. Uh, in a minute, we're going to give you guys a chance to respond. We have these cards, um, and uh, the ushers actually just started handing them out yet. Uh, right now. Please don't fill them out yet. We're going to watch a video. I'm going to come back up. I'm going to pray for you guys because, again, I don't want you to fill these cards out because Doug and I had a compelling enough argument. I don't want you guys to fill them out because you feel obligated or coerced. I want you guys to fill these out because I hope as we pray that Jesus will move in your heart and and, and motivate you to feel, yes, I want to be a part of fulfilling the Great Commission through the church that Jesus started when he was here. These cards are just a way to start a conversation. You put your name and your contact info on there. Um, we'll get a lot of cards, so it might take us a while to hit you up, so don't fault us for that. But um, it's just a way to start a conversation. If you fill one of these out, you're not like signing in blood or anything like that. Like It's not like we're going to show up cr- with crowbars at your house in a few weeks and be like, you filled one of these out, you're not doing stuff. No, we just want to start a conversation. Um, there are different things you can check off. If you're interested in being part of FBC Kids or FBC Youth, you can check it off. If you don't know where you want to serve, just check off wherever needed, and we'd love to tell you more about these things. And a lot of these, there, there are so many different ways you can contribute. There are ways during the week and stuff like that. And we just want to give you guys an opportunity to be a part of God's great commission that's happening here at FBC. Um, again, don't fill these out quite yet because I want to pray for you guys, but you can, you can fill those out. If you don't know where, just put your name and stuff. In a few minutes, they're going to pass a plate and you can put these back in. Um, there's also a part on the bottom where it says if you have any special skills or abilities, you can fill that out. Um, so that, that's anything. What makes you you? Maybe you're a professional joke writer. We'd love to get you to help Doug write his sermons or something like that, but just kidding, Doug. Um, but we'd just like to get to know you. We'd like to ha- start a conversation with you guys and stuff like that. Um, we're going to watch a video, uh, and then after that, uh, just hold on one minute on these, and I'm going to talk to you guys about them for one more second, um, and then uh, and all that. And I, I, Sorry, I really quickly want to say, I forgot to say this. If you're new here, please don't feel like you have to fill one of these out. Um, we're happy for you to just have some space, some time and space to check us out. You know, I think about like in junior high when like that new cute girl shows up in your class. Day one, you don't walk up to her and be like, yo, baby, let's date, you know? You know, you you check her out for a little while. But if you've been here for a long time, staring at someone from across the room and checking them out for years on end gets really weird and awkward and creepy. So stop checking us out and make a move, you know? Be like that strong, stalwart, grade eight kid who walks across the room to that girl, looks her square in the eyes and says, hey, Uh, you know? So... (laughs) Also, they say in the North American church there's this 80-20 principle where 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Part of the reason we're handing these cards out is because we don't want to be that church. We want to be a church where 100% of the people do 100% of the work. We want you guys to contribute and not just consume the things that other people are willing to contribute. Um, If you're here and you're one of those 
28, you're one, part of that 20%, you're like a, a youth leader, an FBC kids that you're doing tons. I want you to know that we're so thankful and we appreciate what you're doing. You don't have to fill this out. Maybe you're here and you're doing a little bit. You're like, I volunteer once a month or once every few weeks. I don't do it much. You know, fill this out. We'd love to talk to you about doing some more and stuff like that. Anyways, I'm going to stop talking about these cards. Uh, check out this video and then we'll, we'll talk for a minute more. The cool thing in the story of Nehemiah is that uh, they finish the work and then they send to Persia for more of their people to come. And almost 50,000 people are able to return to Jerusalem and live there safely. That's a cool picture and vision of what it looks like when we work together and we're willing to be the difference and we're willing to sacrifice and serve for the sake of the gospel. Again, with these cards, don't fill it out for any other reason except that Jesus moves in your heart to say, yeah, I wanna do something or I wanna do more. Um, I'm going to pray for you guys in a second. After that, we're going to sing a couple songs. During the first song, um, at some point, the ushers are going to pass out the plates. Uh, we're not taking a second offering. Uh, you can uh, just throw those cards in there once you have them filled out. You can fill them out during the song. And then we're going to sing another song together. There should be lots of pens in the seats. If there isn't one, then just reach into some lady's purse beside you or put your hand up and an usher will bring you one or whatever. But anyways, let me pray for you guys, and then we're going to sing a couple songs, and you can fill out those cards and drop them off. Jesus. You are so amazing. Thank you that you gave every ounce of who you are for our sake and for our benefit, God. I pray that you would just work here at FBC today to help us be a church that's willing to give back to you and to your church, God. We love you so much, and I pray that you would just draw people in our community to know you through what we're doing here, God. I pray that the gospel would be known be made known to people all over Lloydminster because of the work that you're doing here at FBC, God. In Jesus' name, amen.